Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Glenn Elmers is a research fellow at the Claremont Institute and the author of The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. I believe we covered that on the podcast uh, about a year and a half ago, Glenn. We did, thanks. His new book is The Narrow Passage, Plato, Foucault, and the Possibility of Political Philosophy. That's our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Elmers. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. First line of the book, you are being manipulated. Uh, is this the, uh, well, actually you go on to say Amer later in the paragraph, Americans are lied to on a daily basis. That that's what really gets, gets to me. Is this now, is this really the first principle now of political understanding in the 21st century? I think so. So let me just say, uh, I, I mentioned Foucault in the title and a lot of my conservative friends, friends on the right don't understand why I would take that guy seriously. But Foucault and the other deconstructionists who he didn't take seriously in, in the 80s and 90s when they were writing actually turned out to be pretty perceptive because they saw we're living in a postmodern world. And certainly our elites, our ruling class is living in a postmodern world. And for them, there is no objective ground for truth. And so when I say that Americans are being lied to on a regular basis, uh, that's true from our perspective. You and me actually believe in the distinction between lying and truth. But the ruling class, to the degree that they're influenced by this Nietzschean postmodernism, they think that the truth is just a reflection of political power. Um, and so I think that is uh, a, one of the most salient facts of our lives today. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a great mistake for conservative intellectuals to fail to appreciate the intelligence of a figure like Foucault. Or, you know, you got to read Marx. Sure. Conservatives. But Foucault, Foucault was very learned. Yeah. He, I, I, I'll give you a little, a little story. A friend of mine was a, was an older friend of mine. He was a graduate student doing his dissertation and he was writing about Foucault and he actually went to Paris and was doing work and met with Foucault outside the Bibliothèque Nationale. And he said to Foucault, what, well, what should I be reading now? And Foucault just waved at the library. You know, he, he loved he loved being in the archive. He loved digging. That was his favorite place to maybe his second favorite place to be. We won't go into the first favorite place, uh, you know, bathhouses, San Francisco. But right. the uh, uh, there's a lot of material in Foucault. And while I mean, here's my take. I, I don't, I don't want to go too long on this. But while one can test whether Foucault's ideas about institutions, power and truth apply to the world as a whole, 
uh, Glenn, I think they apply very well to institutions that have been taken over by the left. A Absolutely. Foucauldian analysis yeah. is perfect for their structures. Right. And I think that's the whole point. I mean, so the book is premised on the idea. I focus mainly on trying to understand the mind, the weird, schizophrenic, <laughs> neo-pagan mind of the left. Uh, you know, the, the, the crisis of the, of the woke regime, in a way, is, is what I'm trying to understand in terms of political philosophy. Uh, and the left is dominant in all of our institutions, not just the federal bureaucracy, but of course, academia and popular culture and publishing. And now more and more the business world, more and more the military. And this is very alarming. Um, and it's important to understand what the nature of this postmodern ideology is, which is not always understood conscientiously. I think a lot of these, you know, DEI instructors are just parroting kind of third or fourth rate Heideggerianism, but it comes from Heidegger and Nietzsche and through the postmodernists, and it trickles down. And I think it's important for, for us to understand that. Well, one of your points in the book, and really one of the rationales for it, is that in this post-truth, post, post whatever, post-liberal, post-modern situation, it's highly confusing yeah, sure. to <laughs> us. You say that the, for instance, the old model of the republic whereby the people exercise their sovereignty by electing representatives to guard their constitutional rights. That's over, but it isn't quite clear exactly what, 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 what civic condition, what society, what culture uh, they, they have produced now. It just seems very chaotic to people. And, you know, I mean, Glenn, do you ever suspect that chaos is, is, is part of the goals? Yeah, that's certainly uh, plausible. Uh, you know, one of the things I assert is, you know, communism took sort of a turn in the 70s, in part because of Mao and in part because, Mao Zedong, in part because of certain, uh, you know, Marxist intellectuals like Marcuse and Adorno. And they, they sort of gave up on the idea of utopia, right? I mean, history wasn't really delivering on its promises. You know, the utopian final state it seemed to be sort of illusory, but they didn't want to give up on the power and the other things. And so the permanent revolution became a goal. And in a way, the new left is the pursuit of permanent revolution. And in a way, that sort of seems to make some sense of wokeism, right? Which is just this endless, regressive, uh, uh, um, angry revolt against things with no clear positive agenda. It's not clear what kind of society they even want. Right. And when I hear conservatives or, or liberals for that matter, say, uh, you know, well, well, you know, how far can they go? What are they going to do next? Well, they can go as far as they as they try, uh, and there is no that permanent revolution. It right. always has to keep turning. Uh, and but but well, I I want to stick to the book, but but Linda, to to look ahead, how long can this? How long can a society live in a state of chaos? So this is the $64,000 question. I mean, it is funny that for a long time, uh, people on the right, uh, you know, sort of more establishment people, people who uh, don't like, quite want to admit to themselves how bad things are, keep saying, oh, they've gone too far now. They've gone over their skis. There's going to be a reaction, right? They've gone too far. Well, we've been hearing that they've gone too far <laughs> for the last how many years, right? And, oh, oh, the pendulum will always swing back. Right. Um, yeah. But there does, you are right that there does seem to be a limit. And I think that may be not so much on the domestic front, 
but on the global front, right? I think the U.S. is in grave danger of losing its preeminence, uh, its strategic advantage. Um, and when we cease to be the global power that we are, and the rest of the world asserts itself in very aggressive ways, and we are rapidly diminishing our ability to protect our sovereignty and our interests in the world, then, then things will take a very dramatic turn. There could also be, I think it's entirely possible that there could be a financial crisis, a very severe financial crisis. And then a lot of um, these postmodern, self-indulgent, silly things will necessarily go away. I mean, we can afford a lot of this post-rational inanity because we're still relatively peaceful and prosperous, but, but there's no guarantee that that's going to continue. Yeah. Do, do you refer to liberal intellectuals and commentators, many of them very influential people who institutionally, they seem to have a lot of authority, but when you examine what they say, they themselves don't seem to have a coherent framework. I mean, the old left, you know, if you were a 1930s left-wing progressive intellectual, you, you had a framework. You, 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 the working man, class, uh, uh, battles with labor, capital, it, it, was, it was pretty well laid out what you would represent. Them today, concrete goals, uh, uh, framework, you know, expectations about, okay, we're going to accomplish this in a positive way, not a negative way. Destruction, okay, the, they know what they want to destroy. Right. What do they want to build? Yeah. I, I, so, you know, I mean, maybe I put it this way. I, I, I had a pretty clear sense of what Bill Clinton in 1992 envisioned, a certain kind of neoliberal, economic, social liberalism in, in, in cultural affairs. I have no idea what leading Democrats today envision. Right. So in a way, you're getting at the, the one of the central arguments of the book, which is, I think, up through the 20th century, Marxism, even a kind of Marxism light in the form of socialism, still motivated the left, right? And so the left could talk in a coherent way about what they wanted. They still believed in the idea of progress. They still believed in some variant of, of neo-Marxism. Um, they were still hopeful about the future. And I think the post-Marxist nihilism of Nietzsche and Heidegger has now caught up with them, right? Nietzsche and Heidegger thought that there was no progress to history, right? History is meaningless. There's no rational ground of justice. Uh, there's no progress towards anything. There's no promise of utopia. Nietzsche, in a way, said that Marx was, <laughs> was sort of delusional. Marx and Hegel were delusional. And so I think the left is caught between these two poles. They still want to believe in progress. They still want to believe in science. They still want to believe in the rule of experts. And yet they also are overwhelmed by this postmodernism, anti-rationalism, uh, nihilism, radical atheism. And these two poles are in conflict, right? So on the one hand, we have the rule of experts. We have Anthony Fauci. We have the believers in science. And we have the postmodernists who say, no, there is no science. There is no objective truth. This is all just a construct. And the left is caught between these two contending. And that's why things are so confusing right now, I think, in large part. Uh, when you, when you look at the, the woke movement, actually, you don't yeah. call it a movement. You refer to it as an occupation <laughs> with a capital O. You call it an, an occupation. Well, what, what are you, what are you trying to get at there? Well, I mean that wokeism is a kind of quasi pagan religion, for lack of a better word. And that's not a new 
observation, right? A lot of people have pointed to sort of quasi-religious pagan elements. But I mean that um, the older America, the older constitutional republic, has now been occupied, ideologically speaking, politically speaking, intellectually speaking, by uh, a set of alien ideas, you know, coming out of German philosophy, Heidegger. This goes back to an observation, if I can throw out a name here that I think a lot of your listeners will know. Leo Strauss said a long time ago, after World War II, that a victory on the battlefield does not necessarily mean a victory intellectually or philosophically. And he worried that German philosophy, we defeated the Wehrmacht, we defeated the Nazis, but Strauss worried that the power of German philosophy may in the long run have proven more powerful and more dangerous. And I think that's what we're seeing. Hmm. An occupation by an alien intellectual ideological power. You, you cite a student of Leo Strauss, uh, Harry Newman. Uh, were you a student of his? I was. Uh, both Harry Newman and his friend Harry Jaffa were both teachers of mine in Claremont. Yeah. And Harry Newman say, states, you quote this, atheism or nihilism is inherent in their liberalism. He was yeah. talking about 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 uh, uh, he was talking about enemies, uh, uh, adversaries of Jaffa, right, yeah. right there. But do you think that atheism or nihilism is inherent in sort of late twentieth century liberalism? What liberalism turned into after after the sixties was it inevitable that liberalism would would move in that nihilistic direction? Yeah, so that's a very complicated question. If, uh, and you have to distinguish between different kinds of liberalism, right? I mean, you know, there's there are people on the right who look at European liberalism, liberalism as an intellectual doctrine and see it as inherently flawed and corrupting. I think we have to distinguish that from the sort of moderate political ideas that, say, the Founding Fathers had. Yeah. And I think it's a danger to conflate liberalism as a kind of European ideology with the practical uh, political prudence of the founders and what they were trying to do. But but I think if you look at it strictly as an intellectual philosophical phenomenon, yeah. I mean, once you give up on the idea of God, once you give up on the idea of natural right, that there is something, there's a ground of uh, that nature or morality are grounded in, uh, sorry, that uh, morality and justice are grounded in nature, when you give up the idea of objective morality, the consequences lead to atheism and nihilism, I think unavoidably, right. Is this why we're in a time where we have to ask about even, as you put it in your title, the possibility of political philosophy? What is required for political philosophy to happen? Right. So political philosophy presumes that the world is intelligible, that we live in an ordered universe. Uh, you know, Aristotle Obviously, pre-Christian didn't believe in the God of the Bible, but he did see and argue for a kind of intelligence in the universe. And Plato, too, thought that the universe was intelligible and that we can make sense of it and that we can know something about nature. I mean, nature is a very important concept in, in Greek thought and the idea of human nature. And if you know human nature, you know something about what is good for human beings. And that can point to uh, an idea of what is right or just or moral by nature. Uh, Postmodernism rejects all of that. It rejects God. It rejects nature as a ground of authority, as a ground of justice. Um, and that makes political philosophy very difficult, right? And so the return to political philosophy, the possibility of political philosophy depends on whether we can recover this pre-scientific, pre-philosophical, pre-ideological idea that we live in a natural, intelligible world. 
Is this what Leo Strauss was pointing to when he referred to, quote, the crisis of the West? Yes. He says explicitly, uh, the crisis of the West is that we no longer believe in ourselves. We no longer believe that the West has a purpose. We no longer believe that there's a nobility in Western civilization. We've lost faith in everything. Um, and that loss of faith uh, is also a loss of faith in the possibility of political philosophy. And this, he thought, was the crisis at the root of all of our political problems. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, I saw this in academia. It's one of the reasons why I, I shifted from being sort of a standard academic liberal into becoming more conservative and traditionalist. I saw too many of my colleagues in departments where they're supposed to be representing a tradition. You know, a French professor is supposed to love French literature, French tradition, English professors. And I found more and more of them were willing to do things like eliminate from general education their own material, the general ed requirements. History professors saying, you know, we don't really need all the students to take a history class. Uh, you, you know, um, we, 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 can, we can soften up on the number of required. Not everyone has to take Shakespeare to be an English major. These kinds of things. Is that a phenomenon of this? this is, is this a local phenomenon of that loss of confidence? Well, I don't think it's local. I mean, I think and one of the arguments in my book is this is really a global phenomenon. I mean, you see the, the, the crisis of the West in the sense that liberal democracy is now you know, almost a global phenomenon. But you even see some of this a little bit in places like China and Iran. Uh, uh, there's global technological movement, a, a, a division between global elites and populists. Uh, the reaction, you know, COVID was very revealing, right? It was very revealing about the way a global oligarchic elite wanted to take advantage of this crisis in order to solidify its powers. Uh, and that goes way beyond the United States. I mean, this is uh, really global. Um, but, but what you're talking about, this, this self-loathing, which you see in the United States, and maybe is even even more advanced in Europe, that's part of what, what Strauss was talking about, this, this idea that we no longer believe that the West stands for anything. We no longer believe in the nobility of, of, um, of Western civilization. Okay. So, Glenn, if that's what you think uh, about France, then don't be a French professor. <laughs> I mean, they want to have it both ways, right? I want to represent France but I don't want to affirm France. This, 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 this is a duplicity that, that's just, it's always bugged me in, in, my, in my academic career. Have you seen this? Yeah, well, there's a lot of that. <laughs> I, I mean, you mentioned Harry Newman and, and uh, his criticism uh, of uh, these liberals. One of his critics, so Newman considered himself a nihilist. He thought 
or at least he called himself that in sort of didactically. And he wanted to push people to see the consequences of what happened. So, okay, you want to reject God. You want to reject the idea that there's something right by nature. You want to reject uh, any objective ground of morality. Here are the consequences. The consequences mean utter and absolute nothingness. It means that hmm. there are no breaks on violence. The only thing that you can affirm is the absolute will to power, which just means the rule of the stronger. It, it means you can't object to anything as being evil, right? And what he said is most people can't accept the consequences of that. And so they, they turn out to be cowardly nihilists. They turn out to be fake, weak. <laughs> and he yeah. thought that, you know, there's a lot of liberals out there. Uh, you know, Richard Rorty was sort of an example of this. Or you know, He wanted to believe in liberal democracy, but he claimed that there was no objective ground to defend liberal democracy. It's just a preference. Well, you know, that just means that anyone who has a stronger preference than you gets to rule you. <laughs> Rorty wanted to think that everyone, uh, you know, the nice people would would end up on top and, right. and create a nice society and we would all huddle together against the dark. So uh, of the universe. Um, but uh, you turn to the death of Socrates at, at one point and its relevance to today. What is your take on the verdict, the guilty verdict passed on him by the Athenians? So from a political point of view, the Athenians were justified. Socrates uh, did challenge the gods of the city. He did. Uh, he was querulous. And, and uh, you know, you have to remember in the ancient city, religion defined every aspect of life. And that, you know, you certainly see that in ancient Jerusalem, but it was also true of the Carthaginians and the Babylonians. Every regime, every ancient city was a holy city. And all the laws came from, came from God. And that was true even in cosmopolitan, sophisticated Athens, right? To challenge the gods of the city was to commit treason. And from that point of view, Socrates was treasonous. Um, and this shows, in a way, that there's always a tension between philosophy and politics. Uh, part of the problem of modernity, part of the problem of modern liberalism, is they thought that they could make philosophy safe, that we could rip away all of the safeguards, all of the... Um, pieties that make citizenship and moral life possible, mm. uh, that we could just corrode all of the moral foundations of society. And what we're finding now is we can't get along without those foundations. <laughs> that, that, that actually leads right into my next question about the woke crusade, where you say that it seems, quote, to fill a deep psychological need by supplying communal bonds, moral seriousness, and spiritual zeal. Precisely that which, you know, cosmopolitan liberalism it removed. Right. Uh, is, is the woke crusade, I mean, in that sense, the woke crusade, in, in a way, it's more an answer to liberalism than conservatism. Yeah? Sure, sure. I think, the, in a way, it's really the left that's defining uh, all the, the crisis of modernity. So the left again, rejected God. It rejected the idea of nature as a standard or an authority. It rejected, you know, the moral political traditions that kept Western civilization going. But then it found uh, there was, to use an old expression, a hole in the soul, right? It found that this spiritual emptiness, this alienation, this existential angst was unbearable. And again, Nietzsche points to this. And so I think now this deep psychic need for community, for faith, for belief, for belonging, is returning 
in the form of wokeism, but of course returning in a deranged and destructive way because it's so, in a way, artificial uh, and, and willful. Uh, having rejected all the, all the great traditions of the West, they now want to rebuild them in this completely deranged way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are the materials out of which, right. I mean, I mean, it, it's sort of basically what, what guilt, shame, uh, racial, racial, you know, tribalism. This is, this yeah. is their, these are their building blocks. Exactly, exactly. And, and as you say, as you said earlier, you know, it's, it's not unclear how long this can continue. Um, you know, look, one, one thing is, uh, there's only so much social capital to go around. We're depleting our economic capital very quickly in this country, but we're also depleting the social capital, right? Um, people, there has to be some ground of citizenship to hold people together. There has to be some basis of civic friendship, and that is being destroyed very quickly. And it's unclear what will happen when they've destroyed it far enough that people no longer feel any attachment to each other. Yeah. Strauss believed that Machiavelli was the first philosopher of the modern world, uh, you, and you you discussed this. What was it about Machiavelli that that we we would call modern? So Machiavelli, in a way, refounded politics in response to the problem of Christianity. And I want to be very careful here, especially with your audience, in saying not that Christianity itself is a problem, but it posed a political challenge because, as I was saying a little earlier, in the ancient world, every city had its own gods and there was no distinction between your obligations to the gods and your obligations to the city. To be a believer, to be a citizen, were, went together. Piety was, in a way, a, a, a political obligation. But Christianity introduces, for the first time, a universal religion. But you have a universal religion with many different political entities, right? So you have one church in Western Europe, but you have the King of France and you have the princes of Germany and you have the Doge of Venice and all of, and you have for the first time a division between political authority and ecclesiastical authority, between your duties as a believer and your duties as a citizen. And this caused all sorts of problems. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, made, uh, it made politics both too weak and too severe from Machiavelli's point of view, right? Uh, princes were too concerned with the afterlife. They neglected their political obligations, but they also could be too severe because they wanted to use uh, their power to enforce religious orthodoxy. And so you have all sorts of uh, problems here that Machiavelli is trying to address. And his solution to that is just refound politics on, an, on a very low, self-interested, and we now use the term Machiavellian basis, right? Just ruthless self-interest and get rid of all of this concern about virtue and the soul and the afterlife and morality. And that's, in a way, the basis of uh, uh, modern philosophy, right? This uh, realpolitik, this, this exclusive interest in self-interest without any concern for virtue. That's, that's Machiavelli's uh, foundation of, of, of modern, uh, modern politics. Yeah. Is Foucault our great thinker of postmodern reality? Would yeah, so uh, this is probably a little too complicated to get into here, but you have a modern philosophy becomes increasingly radical from Machiavelli onward through thinkers like Rousseau and Hegel. Uh, they become more and more radical in response to Machiavelli's attempt to solve the problem. And every attempt to solve the problem just, in a way, digs the hole a little deeper. 
And, and by the time you get to Nietzsche and Heidegger, you have just this most radical uh, atheism and nihilism and relativism and historicism. And Foucault and his thinkers, uh, his, his fellow thinkers like Derrida and others, are trying to think through, okay, what do we do? How do we do social science? How do we do politics in this post-Nietzschean world where there is no objective truth? And so in a way, the reason they're so abstruse and hard to read is they're trying to rebuild social science on the basis of a complete absence of rationality and truth. <laughs> and that turns out to be a very strange project, which is why they're often very hard to read. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would tell people who are uh, worried about cancel culture and surveillance, you know, the surveillance state, which is often not even done by the state, but by private actors, yeah, right. go ahead and read the first, the first couple of chapters of Foucault's Discipline and Punish. Uh, the French title, which is not surveiller, to surveil, to to watch over, and a, a punir, to and and punish. Uh, that's from the that's from the early seventies. Um, and again, I, I I wouldn't say it applies necessarily to the state at all times, but it sure applies to the state and in institutions when they're in the hands of the left. Yeah. So, and by the way, one of on that point, one of Foucault's great observations is. Uh, the modern bureaucratic state erases the distinction between the public and the private, right? Power becomes all-pervasive. Uh, and you get not just a kind of corporatism, a kind of mixture. In a way, it's even beyond that. You have a ruling ideology, which transcends the distinction between public and private. Uh, and so all the institutions, in a way, become sucked up into the power narrative, which becomes uh, all-consuming. Right. Last, last, last point, Glenn. It's a quick answer. You, you refer to Heidegger. You quote him on saying, "We're we're in a state of waiting. That 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 that's sort of this postmodern condition. We're waiting, and what we're waiting for is quote new gods." You agree? Is that where we are? Well, what Heidegger meant by that is sort of a complicated story. He meant some new, uh, something new to believe in. Um, yep. Heidegger uh, was raised Catholic, and he had a very complicated relationship with Christianity. Um, but what he meant is uh, all ground of belief had been obliterated by Nietzsche and postmodern thinking, right? Nihilism had become basically the effectual truth of the modern world, certainly of the intellectual class. And that means that but people can't live in this state of non-belief, right? People can't live in this state of spiritual emptiness. And Heidegger thought that something had to come along to, to give us new purpose, new meaning, something to believe in. And that's what he meant by that. The book is The Narrow Passage, Plato, Foucault, and the Possibility of Political Philosophy. Glenn Elmers, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It was great. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.